You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Good morning, church. Uh, If you have a Bible, a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1? I welcome you here this uh, March break, long weekend of time change. Uh, The faithful few, 9 a.m., well done, well done. Uh, my name is Craig Turnbull, and I get to be one of the pastors here on staff, and I also get to introduce to you what's going to happen today and what's going to happen next weekend. Uh, we're going to take a little pause from our Holy Spirit series as Robbie steps away from the pulpit for a couple weeks, and uh, myself and then next weekend, Pastor Nathan, are going to be walking you through, as our elders have directed us, uh, two specific areas of biblical counseling that we see occurring again and again and again in the lives of the people in this church. These are two areas of of struggle and two areas of great sin and great difficulty that lead and train wreck so many lives within our church. And so we thought we'd pause, back away from the biblical counseling department, take this material, take God's word, and bring it to you as a congregation so that you might hear uh, as a whole what God's word has to say to you about this. So this weekend, I get uh, complaining and contentment. Next weekend, uh, Pastor Nathan will be walking us through God's word and what it looks like to move from shame to honor and uh, discussing those big issues. And then, Lord willing, after that, uh, Pastor Robbie will be here, and he will be walking us, continuing through the Holy Spirit series on into Easter. But for today, the task ahead of us uh, is to look at, I believe, one of the most invasive, uh, one of the most pervasive, and one of the most excused sins in our lives and in our culture. Uh, Looking at something that everyone will, oh, we all struggle with that. It's no big deal. It's not a real big thing. I think it is a big thing. I think God's word says it's a big thing. And incidentally, as we were looking at the topics to discuss and maybe uh, hash out with with you and to preach through, uh, Pastor Nathan said, I'm going to take this one. And I looked at the list and I said, that's the one I want. Because that's the one I struggle with the most. So I'm with you in this. I'm I'm preaching to myself as I talk to you uh, this day. It's one of the biggest struggles in my life. This sin lives everywhere and anywhere. Uh, It's in the heart of the child who says, no, I want more. I want more candy. I want more TV. I want more toys. I want more fun. Uh, Then the child grows up to become a young adult, and they they say, you know what? I want more entertainment. Uh, I, I want more experiences. I want more clothing. I want more stuff. And then they get married, and they say things like, you know what? I want more vacation. I want more stuff. I want more respect in my home. Uh, And then maybe the single person says today, you know what, I want more companionship. I want more validation. Uh, And then right into the old person who says, you know what, I want more health, better health, better time, different finances, more security, more status, more respect. This general lack of contentment that is everywhere and anywhere, it, it drives us in what we spend, in how we act, in what we think about. Uh, The entire advertising world is built upon the truth and the struggle that you and I are not happy with what we have. Uh, The continual desire in your heart to compare yourself to other people, to compare yourself, to compare your spouse, to compare your kids, your job, your salary, your home, your car, your health, is because you and I are not content with what we have. The reason why you get so bored and so disinterested with the things that you buy one microsecond after you buy them is because you and I are not content with what we have. 
So often the reason that you eat too much and you sleep too much and you drink too much is because you are not content with what you have and the life that God has placed you in. And this is in the church too, loved ones. There is teaching in the church that says, you know what? The gospel is not just that Jesus died for your sins. No, that's not enough. The gospel is also that he wants to make you prosper. He wants to make you filled with prosperity. He wants to bring you riches as well. It's not enough that Jesus died for you. We want to give you more. Think about this. How much of your time spent in social media looking at other people's lives leaves you discontented and wanting more? How about even this week as that family or that couple or that people that you love is away somewhere warm and you are here on the beginning end of the snowstorm? How much of that drives you? How much of your interactions with your friends leaves you feeling complaining and wanting more? How much of your time at this church has you walking away murmuring and wanting more, different, better than what I've got? How many conversations have you had this week where the person that you're speaking to says, you know what? I've got enough. I'm good. I don't need anything else. Few, I bet. How many times this week have you said to yourself, where I am right now, It's enough. It's enough. Psalm 23, verse 1 says to us, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Is is that the reality you're living in right now? The Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything else. This, This sin lives everywhere and anywhere. And the Bible is so good enough to call it out as sin in many places. Exodus 16, your grumbling is not against us, it's against the Lord. Do all things without grumbling, says Paul. Uh, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content with what you have. God's word calls it out as a sin. You know what I want to do today? I, I I want us to recognize the truth and the reality that we must be done with complaining in our lives. You know what I want? I want to be done with excusing away behaviors and actions and thoughts in my life that God's word says is inexcusable. God's word calls it out as a sin, and I don't want to say, you know what, it's okay, everyone does it. No, 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 no. Complaining is sin. It's dark, it's wicked, it's of Satan. When you grumble in your heart or complain with your mouth, you stand in direct opposition to God. So for my heart today, I want to believe the truth that God says it's a sin and he doesn't want it in my life and he hates it. So I want to believe that. I want to hate complaining in my life as God hates complaining in my life. And so here's how things are going to go. We're going to look at a little bit of a systematic theology. We're going to take two passages of God's word. We're going to look first at Deuteronomy chapter 1 and we're going to see an example of where complaining can lead you. How far into loss complaining can lead you. And then we're going to walk out of complaining into contentment. And then we're going to look at a great example of God's word. In fact, looking at uh, Philippians chapter 4 and how Paul deals with complaining. The medicine that Paul brings. And by the way, we're going to be filling out a diagram as we do this. And you'll have to give grace to me because uh, I am struggling with a a little bit of a cold. Uh, Not that I'm complaining. (laughs) All right. Isn't that how it happens sometimes, too? You just, I'm just telling it like it is. I'm not complaining. Do you see how that goes? 
I'm just, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you that the line was long. I'm just telling you that the kids were awful today. I'm just telling you that my husband is the way he is. I'm not complaining. You see how sick this is? All right, here's point number one in your outline. Uh, point number one is this. It's very complicated. Stop complaining. <laughs> Stop complaining. So from this passage, again, I'm going to give you, use this passage as an example of where complaining will lead you, of how bad complaining is, how wicked, how sick, how disgusting complaining gets in your life. Now, the context of Deuteronomy chapter 1 is, is this records for us the second time that Moses gives the law to the Israelites. The Israelite nation has been released by God's strong hand and mighty works out of the land and bondage of Egypt, and they've been brought into the wilderness. They've been protected in the wilderness. They were walked into the edge of the promised land, and then, and then God gives them the law and the promised land before stepping in, and, and they're about to step in, and well... The first time didn't, didn't go well. They were about to go into this land that God had given them, but it didn't go well. Look at what Moses, in fact, Moses describes it for us in, in verse 19 of our text. Then we set out from Horeb, and we went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. Now, where's Kadesh Barnea? Well, I found this map, and... Uh, <laughs> It's actually a map I drew because I couldn't find a map. Here's Egypt over here. Uh, the, the Israelites are released from bondage out of Egypt, and they're brought into Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the Lord gives Moses the law. Now, this is a wilderness area, but it's a, that's not right because there's no cactus that exists in this area. They're indigenous to North America. Did you know this? I didn't know this. Uh, this is all desert wasteland. This is the promised land, the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea. There's Jericho, the first city they will take. And then Jerusalem is about here, but it's not called Jerusalem at the time. Uh, now, this is the Dead Sea. They're going to come into this place called Kadesh Barnea for the first time. This is about where the land gets fertile. In fact, this is what Kadesh Barnea looks like uh, a few years ago. Uh, it's a, you can see it's a fertile valley, but it's surrounded by hill country. What happens in this place? Verse 20, and I said to you, in this place, Kadesh Barnea, you've come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up. Take possession. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Pause. Question. Why did Moses say, do not fear or be dismayed? Because they were fearing and being dismayed. A fear has come. A crisis has hit in their life. Something has happened that has deflected the norm. Something unusual has occurred within the life of the Israelites that all of a sudden they're faced with a crisis. What do we do? What do we do in this crisis? In their fear, what's their response? Well, Numbers actually, the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, tells it in greater detail of what the Israelites do, but Moses summarized, what did they do? What was their response? Verse 22, then all of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again by, of the way by which we will go up and the cities into which we shall come. Verse 23, this, this seemed good to me. And I took 12 men from you, uh, one man from each tribe, and they turned and they went up into the hill country and came into the valley of Escol and spied it out. What was their response? The crisis has hit the Israelites. They've come, they're about to step into the land. The crisis has come. The affliction has come. This moment of turning has come. What's their response? What would be your response? What are your kids learning 
right now in Harvest Kids. What's the, if I talk to your kids, maybe three, four, five, six, seven years old, and I said, boys and girls, when something hard happens in your life, when difficulties come, when you face problems, what should you do? I bet you many of them would say, we should trust God. We should ask God for help. Your kids get it. I don't get it. The Israelites didn't get it. What did they do? They sent men in front of them. Affliction, crisis, problems drive them to seek out man-made solutions to the problems. Uh, look again at verse 22. Then all of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us. Look quickly just down a little bit in verse 30. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. They're sending men to do God's job. This is the first step in complaining in your life. Uh, when you're faced with a crisis and you understand from God's word God's great strength for the crisis to help you in the crisis, you say, no thanks. And you jump to your own solutions. Let me show you this diagram. This is the, the step in the way, the pathway to growing complaint within your life. You want to turn pro at being an awesome complainer in your life? Then this is the way you do it. When you face the crisis, when the difficult situation comes, when the trial comes, however small, however great, you step away from the strength that God will provide for you, and you will say, you know what, I, I, I'm giving that up. I'm going to do things my own way. I'm, I'm not going to listen to what God says. I, I'm going to turn to myself. I'm going to turn to the world. I'm going to go to friends to help me solve it. My first response in this life is not going to be to seek the Lord's strength in this crisis. My first response is going to be to seek for my wallet. My first response is going to be to seek for my friend's help. I'm going to go into my wisdom, into my skills, into my help. I'm going to look for my doctor. I'm going to go to me to solve this problem. I don't need the Lord's strength. When a crisis comes or when my life isn't working the way that I want it to, I immediately look to solve it with my own hands. Listen, if, if you want to grow in complaining in your life, then when that crisis comes, just walk away from the strength that the Lord will provide from you. Look what happens next. Verse 25, and they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and they, and they brought it down to us. And, and brought us word again and said, this is a good land that the Lord is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. What are they doing? Murmuring in their tent. That, great word, that word murmuring in the Hebrew means to mutter under their breath, to mutter complaints under their breath. You know what that's like? Uh, uh, the, line, the line's too long. Uh, can't believe this is how, I can't believe this boss doesn't, uh, my husband doesn't listen to me. Uh, my kids are just, uh, can't believe this is what we've got in the bank. This is, this is, this is vacation. Uh, Muttering under their breath, murmuring. Here's step number two. You want to take a, a band, you want to get into complaining? The next thing you're going to do is you're going to accuse God's character. 
You're going to look at your situation. You've abandoned the strength of God, and, and, and things are getting worse. You're complaining in your life, and then now all of a sudden you're going to start to accuse the character of God because the Lord hated us. He brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. When crisis comes, not only will I do what I want, but I will also accuse God of being wicked in it. He's wronging us, of luring us into the wilderness to try and destroy us. Now, Numbers 14, Numbers 14 is, the, is the original passage where this happens, and it describes in greater detail what happens. I think it's worthwhile to pull it up. This is what happens in Numbers 14 when the spies come back and they report at Kadesh Barnea, then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You accuse God in his character of being wrong. This trial, this is terrible. You must not love me. God, don't you even care? Look what you're doing to me. You put me in this place. You've got to fix this now. You must not care about me. God, God, who in his word describes his great love for you, who demonstrates to the ultimate degree his great love by sending his son to die for you, you say to him, in your complaining heart, it's not enough. It's not enough. You gotta give me this job. You gotta fix my kids. You gotta repair this situation. You gotta get me that toy. I want that to wear. I want that house. I want, I want, I want. Or, I don't want. I don't want this. I don't want this situation. I don't want this person in my life. I don't want this difficulty. I don't want to wait. God hates me. Or even worse, God doesn't care about me. God doesn't give a rip about me. Proverbs 19, verse 3, hits it really well on the head. When a man's folly, when my foolishness leads me to this place and brings me to ruin, my heart rages against the Lord. It's your fault, God. You're trying to destroy me. You don't care about me, God. And notice the Israelites complaining goes public, but, but, but it happens somewhere first in, in their tents. Did you see this? They go back to their tents and they murmur. They, they go back and they have the meeting and they murmur. And then it explodes, but, but they're murmuring in their tents. Does that sound familiar? You leave the meeting, you go to your tent, you murmur. You leave your job, you leave your kid's school, you leave your school, you leave your small group, you leave the weekend's message, and you go to your tent, and you murmur. Wouldn't it be great if after this week, after this day, you went home and, and stapled a sign to your door that said, no murmurers allowed. No murmurs allowed. So, you know, when the husband comes home from work, when your wife comes home from work, or your wife's had that busy day with the kids at home, uh, or your kids call you up on the phone, or your friends come over for dinner, and they, they start, and you know, uh, you, you just, you're point to the sign. Like in love, in love. Honey, honey. No murmurs allowed. Understand this, loved ones. Complaining, a complaining heart, does not fit 
a child of God. It doesn't fit a child of God. Notice also when you compare the Deuteronomy passage with Numbers, how quickly the murmuring in the tents become public outcries against their God. How quickly this goes. The toxicity that is brought into our tents poisons our families, poisons our workplaces, poisons our groups, poisons our church. This murmuring turns into outright rebellion and cries against God and his leaders. Fathers, is this the kind of legacy you want to leave? Mothers, is this, is this what you want to show your kids? Husbands, wives, is, is this how you want to love each other? Is this love? Do you know what my wife has never said to me? She has never said this to me. She has never said, honey, when you complain, that is so attractive to me. She never has and never will. And she's no different than any spouse in this room. And why is that? Well, because complaining doesn't fit with a child of God. It doesn't fit with a child of God. Wouldn't it be great this week with that sign, no murmurers allowed? Listen, would you be bold enough to love people in this way? Would you love me this way? You catch me in a conversation in the lobby and you catch me, you know, with the murmur going... Hey, no murmurs allowed, Craig. That's the second step. You accuse his character. What comes next? Verse 28. Uh, where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Do you know who the Anakim were? Neither do I. <laughs> History, I guess, didn't seem to make it a big deal. Who cares about these guys? Some people who are gone were there. Okay, verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Okay, so you remove the strength of God from your life. You begin to accuse the character of God in your life. What's happening third? Again, you want to turn pro at complaining? You're going to forget God's actions. Forget everything that God has done in your life. Forget all the goodness he's done. Moses tells the people, look, don't you remember? Don't you remember what he's done? Don't you remember how he's delivered you from the Egyptians? We remember the Egyptians. You know why we remember the Egyptians? Because for thousands of years, they were the global superpower. And what God did to the global superpower is break them by himself without anyone's help. And it wasn't even hard for him. And he carried them out in the wilderness every day like a man carries his son. But listen, when you slide into complaining... You forget what God has done in your life. You forget the every other day of your life that he's done this. You forget what God has done. You, in fact, you will say to God, not what, you will not look at what God has done. You will say this to God. You'll say, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? Complaining blinds you. Blinds you to so much. It blinds you to the reality of the gospel that God is good and God loves you. It blinds you to the truth of the gospel that says to you, look, you don't deserve anything. But what you have received is far greater than anything you could imagine. 
in Christ Jesus. It's far greater than any affliction you're facing. But you'll forget his deeds. And when you're in that place, it's a very quick step down to take this last step, which is to just disbelieve God's person. You just, you know what? Maybe God isn't there. Maybe God isn't good. Maybe God doesn't care. Verse 32, and in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in cloud by day to show you by the way you should go. This is the end of line for complaining. It ends in unbelief in God. And loved ones, the loss is great. You cease to believe in God and you destroy yourself with your own murmuring heart. And this generation of Israelites that was there in Numbers would forfeit their share of the promised land and it would be given over to their children as Moses recounts the tale to, he's recounting in Deuteronomy 1 to their kids. Listen, listen. Here's the truth. Complaining always leads to loss. You never get anything out of it. It never accomplishes anything. In fact, it just accomplishes loss and loss of blessing. Someone will say, well, why is this so bad? It's just my words. It's just the words. Like, I'm just, meh. I'm just that person. No, it, it, it's more than just words. It's more than you just being a downer. Jesus says this. He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why is this so bad? Because God is not concerned about your words so much as he is about your heart that flows the words out. The problem with complaining is not so much what we say, but the heart behind what says it. Because at the root of complaining, at the root of complaining is a heart that says, God is not able to do anything. At the heart of complaining is, is a heart that says, God is not good, and he doesn't love me. At the heart of complaining is a heart that says, God has done nothing for me. And what he's done is not enough. Does God even exist? Does God even matter? Can I just live life without him? You know what? In truth and in love, I think the reality for so many of us on so many days is that we create a reality. We create a drama in our mind where we are the main character and the story is a tragedy and every day is a hard thing. Every day is an awful life. We are always the victim in every conversation. We are always being, being given the short end of the stick. Uh, the car is too old. The kids are too complicated. The career is, is, is not enough. The money is not enough. I don't get the attention I deserve at home. I don't get the respect I need. My health isn't never where I want it to be. My boss doesn't care. My church isn't meeting my needs. The guy speaking up front isn't the guy that I like. <laughs> Jeremiah Burroughs, he lived, he lived some 400 years ago. He wrote this great book. In the middle, in the middle just before, oh, actually it was in Europe at the time of the plague. Yeah, that plague. And he, he was writing to hearts that were struggling with loss, great loss. He, he says this, Oh, that we could but convince men and women that a murmuring spirit is a greater evil than any affliction, whatever the affliction. And this guy lived in the plague. 
that a, that a complaining heart is worse than, than the plague. That, 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 that a complaining heart is, is worse than your sickness. That a complaining heart is, is worse than the struggles you face at work. That a complaining heart is worse than the struggles you face at home. Oh, that God would open our eyes to see this today. That the greatest struggle we're going through right now is not the thing at work, not the thing at home. It's my heart. It's my complaining against these things of pointing a finger at God, whether subtly or indirectly, and saying he's not good. He can't do anything. He doesn't love me. This is how dangerous complaining is. But today... But today, may the Lord open our eyes and open our hearts to say, you know what, I'm done. I'm, done. I'm not going to excuse anymore. What God in his word says is inexcusable. I want to be done with the sin of complaining. I want to be done with it. Great, so how do we do this? How do we, how do we get out of this place? And I think it's a place that we are all in. We all struggle in this in many ways. How do we move from complaining to contentment? This is point number two in our outline. It's this, start being content. Again, Overly complicated outline, it's not. In every way, we must reverse the diagram that we've shown you. We've got to get out of that pit by doing the exact opposite. And what Moses is going to do is he's going to demonstrate what that looks like in our lives. Moses is going to act as the person who acts contentedly, and the Israelites are going to act as though they're complaining. You're going to see this. So, so Moses shows us exactly how to behave, and you can see the opposite. Instead of, instead of disbelieving, I'm to believe. Instead of forgetting, I'm to recall. Instead of accusing, I'm to ascribe. Instead of abandoning God's strength, I'm to surrender. This, this right here is the path the Holy Spirit wants us on, the path he wants us on. Moses sets it up. How do we believe God in his person? Look at verse 21. Look what he says. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up. Take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This God, Moses says, this God is the God of our fathers. He's the one who called Abraham. He's the one who called Isaac. He's the one who led Joseph into Egypt. He's the one who's protected us. Moses understands this great truth, and this is a great truth that maturity seizes, that, that God brings every situation into my life. Love one, there are no accidents in your life. There's been nothing outside of God's control. He is sovereign. He rules over everything. He rules over your life. He orchestrates everything. Now, I don't know music, but I do know that there's something called a discordant note. A discordant note. And to listen to a discordant note by itself sounds awful. But to listen to it in the midst of a symphony that's being played, you understand where it fits. So many of us, though, are living our lives listening only to the discordant notes. We're just hearing that clang. And we're backing away from that clang and seeing only that clang and going, what's going on? We don't see that God is leading us in our lives. Listen, listen, God, God will bring the difficulty into your lives because he loves you, to break you of the love affair from this world, to show you that he is enough and he satisfies you in any way greater than the world could give you. The Bible, the Bible itself speaks to the fact that God brings the good and the bad. Look at these verses. Lamentations chapter 3. Is not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now this verse is not saying that God can do evil, but God brings difficulty into our lives, sovereignly places it. Read the book of Job. You understand this. Look at Paul's life. You understand this. How about Isaiah 45? I form the light and create darkness. 
I make well-being and create calamity. Create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. Loved ones, the Lord is sovereign over your life. You need to believe this truth right now. That the Lord may have brought this into your life, but he also says to you right now, but I love you, and I'm with you in this. He is the God of the trial also. Moses shows us that we need to believe God in his person, but he also shows us that we need to remember God in his deeds, just moving up that diagram. Uh, Verse 30, he's the God of our fathers, Moses says, but also verse 30, he is the Lord your God who goes before you. He will fight, he will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord has carried you all the way you went until you came to this place. Do you not remember how he rescued you from Egypt and preserved you in the wilderness? Don't you remember? Don't you forget? Like, like how he took on that global superpower by himself? We forget this so easily, don't we? We, we, we don't look at all that God has done. We look at what God has done for us lately, and, and we don't see it. We need to remember God's deeds. But then thirdly, we need to ascribe God's character. Look again at verse 31. You've seen how the Lord has carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. As a man carries his son. The Lord has blessed me with a son that I can still carry. Does this speak of hatred? Does this speak of a God who doesn't care? Does this speak of a God who neglects his children? No, no, Moses understands this. Moses holds on to this truth. Do you remember this? Do you remember how God met every need he carried? He picked you up. Your sandals didn't even wear out. You never lacked for food. You walked in the desert. He's been faithful. Do you remember times like this in your life as well? Can you look back at your life and say, you know what, look look what God has done. Look what God's done in my life. You know what I want to be done with today? I want to be done with facing the current trial, facing the current crisis, and saying, you know what? God must not be good, because the way I'm feeling in this current crisis, it must mean that my feelings are accurate and that God is not all that he says he is. You know what I want to be done with? By measuring God according to how I feel on a given day. Instead, I want to measure God according to the truth that he gives. No, I believe, I believe that God loves me. I believe that God is carrying me. I believe that just as God was faithful back in that trial, just as God was good back in that day, he will be good right now. I may not be able to see it. I may not be able to understand it, but God is good. I believe that God is good. Believe the truth, church. You need to look back at your life. Maybe from this current trial right today that God has placed you in, sovereignly placed you in, look back. Instead of complaining at God, say, look at what God has done. Family, 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 look at what God has done. It's hard today. But remember how he did this. Our God will do it again. And then maybe even looking way back before you were even born. And the biggest crisis of your life that you would ever face. And the struggles with your own sin. And how Jesus gave his life for you that you might have life in him. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's done. This is a God who's faithful. This are the actions of a God who loves me. 
He is a good God. God says to them, you think I don't love you? I carried, my, I carried you out of Egypt like my son. You think I don't love you, God says? I gave my son for you today that you might have life. And out of this, when this truth watches over you, church, you're able to say clearly, no, 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 far from hating me. Far from hating me. My God loves me. He is good with a great and awesome love. He is faithful. He is just. He is perfect. He is holy. Instead of accusing God in his character, my heart cultivates a joy as it looks to who he is. And then I take this last step. I surrender to the strength of God. I surrender to the strength of God. No more my own strength. I'm doing it in God's strength. Go up, Moses says. Go up. Go up. Take possession. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you, don't fear or be dismayed. All you have to do is take it. Just go and take it. Why is that? Verse 30. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. You know what Moses is saying to the Israelites right there? You don't have to be strong. God doesn't need one ounce of your strength to accomplish this. That's a word for somebody today. God's not looking for your strength. God knows you have nothing. God's not looking for your ability. God knows you can't do it. God's not looking for your wisdom. He knows you can't figure it out. God's looking for you to surrender to him who has the wisdom, who has the strength, who has the ability. How do I stop complaining in my life? How do I lead my sick heart away from murmuring and into gratitude and thankfulness and contentment, real contentment? I gotta pour these truths over my life, over my life and over my heart and over my family's life and over their hearts. Those four steps. But those are really hard to do. When the crisis comes, my heart finds itself sliding this way, not sliding this way. It finds itself in this place of grumbling, accusing, forgetting, disbelieving, instead of finding its way into belief, remembering, declaring, and surrendering. How do we do this? How do we do this? This leads us to our final question. It's our third point. How do I do it? How do I do it? And for that, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Please turn there. I want, I want God's Word in front of you to see this. Um, I promise I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to do that to you. Okay, great. I see the evil of complaining, and I see the goodness of contentment. I want blessing of living in this place. How, when it's such a struggle every day, can I possibly do this? The Apostle Paul weighs in from his jail cell. Did you know that Philippians was written from a jail cell? It was. So Paul weighs in. So when a guy writes you from a jail cell and says, I know how to be content, you should listen. Because he really knows how to be content. Uh, look at verse 11, Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every situation, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here it is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There it is right there. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Through him who strengthens me. 
<laughs> Paul's not saying, I can do everything if I figure out these four steps. I can figure, if I get these things, if I put some checks and balances in my life, if I memorize the verses, if I add this to my life, if I get some accountability, if I have my family chart, if I put the sign above my door, then I will be able to do all, I will be able to do all things without complaining. I can do it, I can do it. No, he says, I will be able to do all things through him, through him, through him who gives me strength. And the reminder of God's word comes back to us from John chapter 15 when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's everything in the Christian life, loved ones. You can't fight complaining in your own strength. You don't have the ability. The enemy wants you to believe that you can do it, but you don't have the ability. But, but, but through him, we can do all things. Through his strength, we can do all things. So today you're saying, you know what, I, I, today I, I want to be done with the sin of complaining. I'm done with excusing away things that God in his word says is inexcusable. I want to be done with the sin of complaining. You can only do it through him. You want to fight? You want to fight to win? You can only do it through the grace that's provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. In every and any situation he leads you, he gives you strength to do this. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the key. Soaking my heart in the truth of the gospel is what destroys complaining in my life. Do you want to vaporize complaining from your heart? Believe and embrace and love the truth of the gospel. Complaining is gone when the gospel comes at it. Complaining leaves the party because the gospel has come. Because only through the gospel can I understand. You know what? No, God is really who he says he is. He's the God of love who came for me. Only through the gospel can I see him for really who he is, the God of sacrifice who died for my sins. Only through the gospel can I see his great works, this God who bears sin upon his shoulders, that you and I might have freedom from sin, freedom from death. Only through the gospel can I fall upon his strength for my life because he's the God who can do anything. The gospel vaporizes sin in our lives. It leads the heart to saying this great truth. I have Jesus. What else do I need? I've got Jesus. What more is there? I'm good with whatever he chooses to bring me. I'm good with whatever he chooses to withhold. I have Jesus. You can take the world Take it all the way. I've got Jesus. I've got the greater prize. Jesus' words, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And loved ones, if the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. I can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. Unless Jesus helps us, we're in serious trouble. But in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, I can be content. I can be thankful. I can be filled with joy. And I will watch my grumbling heart turn into gratitude and my complaining move to contentment. Lord, help us. Lord, help us, please.